Welcome to this Wigmore Hall podcast. I'm Katie Hamilton and I'm delighted to be joined today by Dame Sarah Connolly, who is starting her residency here at Wigmore Hall. There'll be various concerts and masterclasses over the course of the coming year. Sarah, welcome. Thank you. Tell us a little bit about the choice of repertoire that you've got over the concerts coming up, because it's a very diverse collection of programmes that you've put together. Well, that's me all over, really. <laughs> I like... I like um... I have a very wide-ranging taste of music. I was going to do a jazz programme, actually, at one stage, but that just didn't seem to materialise. I couldn't I couldn't grab the right artists, or they weren't willing to commit because of their fairly last-minute schedules. So it was going to be even more diverse. But, uh, no, I like I like the idea of the Schumann, um, Mary Stuart, Maria Stuart leader, interspersed with words, really fascinated me and has done for a long time. Partly because with Julius, I did a programme here of the um, Dominic Argento songs, the Diary of Virginia Woolf, interspersed with words as well. And and I thought that worked extremely well. Mm. And I thought it would be quite nice to put them together. It's an experiment. I'm not sure it's been done before. But when I was in Vienna, I went to see lots of concerts at the Musikverein and in the Konzerthaus, many of which interspersed set songs, uh, the Liederkreis and lots of different songs by both Schumanns and I thought it was just letters and words and scripts in between. I thought it was a, the audience loved it and I think it's sort of catching on as a sort of uh, way of fleshing out the music. And particularly because both the Argento and the Schumann sets are the songs themselves are kind of moments. They're quite They are. They're big. not connected. Exactly. Yes. So the fact that you've then got something to actually give continuity yes. to what you're getting. Laura Tunbridge, actually, I suggested it to Laura initially, the Cambridge scholar, Schumann expert, and I thought she was going to laugh at me. And she said, oh, what an interesting idea. I said, oh, you're the first person <laughs> to say that. I was sort of various pianists have looked at me sideways on as though to say, are you sure? And uh, I said, well, I'm not going to sort of act it out. We're not going to be having a dramatisation with me walking around the stage or kneeling on a on a prayer stool or anything like that. Um, there is going to be an actor there, Emily, who's going to somehow will work something out that is suitable and not too distracting. So I think it'll be an interesting project. That's that's a concert. And I've also found some songs by Judith Bingham, which we're going to uh, adieu solace, um, which are Mary Stewart's own words, which she has set is the murder of Ritzy in her chamber, uh, uh, heralded by the arrival of Darnley, um, who sets his men on Ritzy in front of her. So it's a dramatic shainer. So I thought that would be a really nice accompaniment to to the Mary Stuart leader. Sounds like a wonderful programme. And something that actually struck me about, about all of the programmes that, you, that you've put together for this residency is how much um, collaboration is a really crucial part of it. Because obviously yes. you've got the actor in for that programme, but yes. then you've also got um, various instrumentalists working with you um, in the uh, French concert that yes. you're doing in November. And you've got um, a choir performing in yes. the English Songbook concert. Well, this slightly reflects my whole life, really. Um, I started as a pianist, um, an accompanist, and I regularly accompanied um, flautists, oboists, violists, um, violinists. <laughs> I mean, everyone, really. Uh, I used to play for Hugh Bean's classes at the Royal College and James Brown, the oboist. I mean, I, I was frequently on call as an accompanist and played the orchestral part to Grieg's Piano Concerto for various concerto trials. 
um, for the real pianists. Um, <laughs> it's totally fake, but I enjoyed I enjoyed it, the idea of accompanying and being part of an ensemble. And I really, really miss because my te- my piano technique has disappeared now. But I really miss playing the Mozart piano quartets. Um, and I managed to get through the Schumann piano quintet and the Vorjak piano quintet. I really miss that listening, that ensemble work as, as a solo singer. So when I do get the opportunity to program works with two or three musicians, it's that aren't just the Brahms viola songs. You know, there's other <laughs> things other than the Opus 101. But I jump at it and I just like singing with other musicians. And also that presumably gives you a slightly different angle on, on repertoire more generally because you're you're kind of you've got the dual repertoire um, view of both singer and chamber exactly, pianist. Exactly. And, um, you know, the, the instrument like bassoon or flute is just another voiced instrument, as it were. And I think that it's, you know, when you've got three or four people in a quartet, um, it's just wonderful to work and be inspired by each other. And a very 19th century way of thinking about an early 20th yes. century way of thinking about programming as well, that kind of miscellaneous approach of being able to bring different forces together. Yes. And, and you can all have sort of a melting pot of ideas, you can exchange ideas, and it's not just me carrying the can for a recital or, or me and the pianist, it's just other, other ideas and thoughts. And so, as you say, lots of French music, the, the um, Malarmé, the Bravel Malarmé, a little bit too high for me, those songs, but it was a possibility at one stage to do those um but mary bevan did them recently and you know they are wonderful with other instruments yes and how this year you've been singing fricka at covent garden uh you've you've done das lied von der Erde very recently yes. as well so we've got marla and wagner in the mix here and big mm. large-scale or- operatic and orchestral work mm. how does that um inform your approach in a in a song recital how do you think those two aspects of your career sort of interlock well, the aspects are very interesting. The actual on the ground, how does the voice work with the two, <laughs> with the with the enormous amount of sound that you have to make for the Wagner? It's quite interesting. I, I did an English song recital at the Oxford Leader the other day, and certainly one or two songs I did feel like I was Phaeton managing some crazy horses at one point. <laughs> you know, sort of Norshice is slightly mismanaging, or slightly aware that the horses were running away with me, and. I definitely quite a bit of reining in there. So, so as far as far as the sort of instrument when it's set up for Wagner, everything um, around that is affected. If it's set up for Handel, then different forces come into play. I always do lots of warming ups that keep my voice mobile and fast. But ultimately, the muscles are tilted towards you know a certain direction, and the body. Uh, has a memory, the muscles, in the, both in the rib cage and in your breathing. It is breathing for long, big phrases. So it's, 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 it's quite difficult, as I'm discovering, to micromanage the phrases. But with, to, the, to the bigger question, um, I would say that the opera work affects the recital work and generally in a complementary way. I think recital work is really important for opera singers. I think you have, keep saying this ad nauseam, but you can paint with smaller brush strokes. You can certainly, Fricker's monologues, her short monologues are, um, I, I have been able to think about them as short leader, short expressive monologues as if I were on a recital platform. I mean, they're largely unaccompanied. They've got these little accompagnati, these or these or these little secco recitative chords in the orchestra. And it's my job to make it interesting and to make 
lots and lots of different colours. And, of course, being on the recital platform, you have to do that. And it's very interesting how I think how the two, certainly with regard to Brangena and Fricka, the two roles are very much enhanced by leader leader work. Mm. And interestingly, my German coach, Francisca Hort, has coached me both on leader throughout my life and Wagner at the Royal Opera House. So she has, you know, and the Waldtauber lead from uh, Guru Leader, um, she's seen me do just about everything there is and in fact has coached me on just about everything <laughs> German I've ever sung. And she says that it's really important that the, the clarity of diction that you have to have to find for Wagner um, it's a, it's a, ins, insisted upon by everybody should bleed into the leader repertoire as well not not in the same exaggerated fashion because you don't have to get across a big orchestra mm. but certainly clarity of thought and text is is much appreciated by audiences certainly in places like the Royal F- Festival Hall which are rather dry um and the acoustic, I mean, and it's very important to to enunciate clearly and to not just in a sort of cold way, but to get your feelings across in a very connected way. I loved what you were saying about finding different colours in the voice. I, I was listening to a, an interview you did recently on Radio 3 where you were talking about the stylistic variety of, of your career of going from Bach and Handel and then mm. through to the kind of bigger repertoires and... And having to think about, and I suppose we will get this also over the course of this season with very Mm. different repertoire, Mm. how one approaches each of those different historical periods, styles from different countries and the different colours and tones and Mm. approaches that one has to find for them. Yes, very much so. As a pianist, you play Bach in a different way than you would play Chopin. Actually, when I was singing Capuletier Montecchi, uh, Romeo, when I was trying to sort of understand what Bellini was doing with some of these cadenzas or some of the lighter phrases, I suddenly thought, this is pure Chopin. This is, this is, and of course they were friends. Um, and I could, once I understood that, I could see where the phrase was going. I could understand the tension in the phrase, the, the, the cadence points, the release, the tension and release. Um, I could understand how the weight of the sound Everything, because when you play Chopin, the weight is removed away. Your arm is taking the weight and your fingers are doing the work. There'll be, there'll be letters about this, of course, now. <laughs> but um, in my understanding of Chopin, it's very much the fingers and, and the, the, the weight is off, off the fingers. And that is the same with the voice. When you're singing um, lighter Bellini, when you're singing a beautiful phrase, you don't drive into the voice you release support very very well get it right into the into the face into the head and head voice but you don't um put the weight in the heft at all in this obviously when there are big cadences with the chorus and everything and you're and you're cross with somebody that's different but when you're trying to sort of present a febrile um soft romantic phrase i always used to think of shop how how would you play this if it was a piece of chopin it's amazing how everything informs everything else. It All does past musical experiences. Yes, and it was yes. I I really it, I really think that was very useful. And does that also um, does that also feed across into your your work in jazz? Would you say that there are things from from kind of classical and operatic background that are connected, or is the jazz style a very separate way of approaching things? Only I think only in the sense that 
um, variation. It's a theme and variation, so it's really all. Oh, so that's it. That's jazz. No, but that, <laughs> that's um, that's the principle behind improvisation. Is is that um, how you improvise and how you bring your passage and your song to life is a whole different skill. That's you need proper skills for that. Um, but in a way, in a very small way, baroque music has elements of that um, improvisation, and. By and large, I've written my own decorations in Baroque music throughout my life. My singing teacher, Gerald, has helped me um, when I was starting out. But I, I now understand what's needed. And if I, if I don't, if I don't, I can't understand how, how to make something more interesting. I'll always ask the conductor, what do you think I could do with this phrase? Um, and when you understand what, what you're doing with regard to the style, um, for example, Baroque music, you don't have arpeggios so much. It's more scale, scalic uh, decoration. But but then if you are doing Rossini, it's definitely more arpeggiated uh, leaps and, you know, quite significant leaps uh, to, that show off the voice. Um, but that's more 19th century. But the 18th century decoration is um, is much closer. The notes are much more um, finely laced, finely weaved, mm. but also harmonically very interesting too in a way that less so as you go through to the 19th century. It's a bit more, um, you're sort of stuck in a various chords, but it's more chromaticism mm. in Renaissance and um, Baroque music. And that's interesting too. And that is picked up on by uh, a number of the composers that are going to feature. Tell us about the Judith Bingham that walked with Ivor Gurney. Yes, a fascinating, wonderful piece, actually. Um, she wrote it for the um, Gloucester Cathedral fundraising concert for the Ivor Gurney window, commissioned by Tenebrae and myself. And it was, the theme, obviously, was Ivor Gurney poetry as well as his music. And she chose a selection of um, poems that reflected the, the countryside, the life, his interest also in France, in various Roman places that they visited in parts of France, history of Romans all over Europe, really. Um, and he wrote various poems about the Romans. And um, she chose snippets from lots of different poems and set the male voices as a sort of, in sort of modal writing, fourths and fifths, uh, very low in their voices to sort of represent distant voices of maybe soldiers, antiquity, always in the distance. And I'm like the voice that's showing the discovery of these things in the 21st century. Um, if you were going out on a walk somewhere and you just came across some Roman ruins. and So the chorus part is, is sometimes it becomes very present, but a lot of the time it's sort of echoes of the past. And and I'm, I'm the sort of very present voice. It's quite a, a deliberate contrast. Initially when I saw it, I thought, I'm very much in the foreground here. It's very active, my vocal line and theirs is very still and I it was a bit self-conscious about that to begin with I said is this really what you want you know you really want me dancing around <laughs> their um vocally I mean uh, dancing around their lines their very still lines and she said well, yes you know we want you to be the active voice it sounds almost like a, a kind of a landscape that you've actually got very much layers visual layers yes. presented in front of you which is a bit like the window itself yes. with, with Gurney standing to yes. one side I suppose looking out across yes I, I asked Tom Denny to incorporate one of the um, lights, one of the eight lights made to incorporate mental illness. 
um, because I think what Ivor Gurney was suffering from would be characterised as bipolar um, disease today, along with other psychological problems from home, you know, his um, relationship with his mother and his brother, Ronald. And um, life at home was difficult, being a cathedral organist as well. There were issues of class, issues of inferiority, issues of superiority. His mother spoiled him. Um, so there were all sorts of other issues coming into play in, into his, his life. So I found that, you know, just having one window one light showing showing this distress. And Tom made this incredible image of someone with their head between their knees, holding their head with these sort of rather grey, sulphurous colours. It was very, very touching. And then the next light is, is somebody standing with their arms open, looking for redemption from the light. Um, and so but it, Tom very cleverly chose several poems, rather like Judith, um, that inspired him, including war poetry as well as observations of um, orchards and fields abroad where he travelled, where he walked. And so it's a bit of everything, really, in those windows. And a great a great sense of humanity mm. as well in that in that variety that's mm. being presented and, and, and I mean a great deal of the programming mm. across these concerts with the with the Argento settings of mm. the Virginia Woolf diaries as well. Um and Certainly, you, you've you said before, and I'm, I'm very admiring of this, the, the importance, the immediacy of this kind of music, how much it connects with now, how yes. much it connects with us. Yes. And how important that is to you as a performer, how important yes. it should be to, to music and the yes, arts in general. And that, that is why I'm really conscious of making, as far as possible, leader and song in general to communicate in the most unfussy, direct way and to get you know, the technique to work for that and not to be preoccupied. And if, like so many singers before me, if the key's wrong, you do it in a key where you can control the voice mm. because you don't want to be watching a singer struggling with the wrong key just because that's the key that Schubert wrote the song. I mean, it's ridiculous. It's, yeah, okay, there are one or two situations where maybe the relationships between A, B and C are important, um, in which case... Most of the time you can put A, B and C together and down a semitone. So that relationship is kept. Occasionally Schubert chose a song deliberately for that key. Um, so it is can be a bit odd if you change it. But ultimately most keys can be changed and you know, pr greater predecessors than I have done that. So I'm not so worried about it. Um, Gerard Souzet sang most things in really low keys, um, with Poulenc playing himself, you know, so uh, I don't worry about The that. ultimate authority. Indeed, yeah. if he does it, that's fine by me. And um, in terms of the kind of, the importance of music relating to us now, I know music education is something you're very, very passionate about, and obviously is currently in a, in a poor way indeed. There have been yeah. reports in the last few weeks about the number of schools no longer able to provide decent music provision mm. at GCSE and A-level. Mm. Um, well, the teachers aren't there because they're not... They're only taking music as a sort of extra study. They're not training as music teachers. Mm. I mean, I'm I'm all in favour of all schools being um, included in the English baccalaureate, sort of the the STEAM, not STEM. Yeah. I I know that many private schools are doing a wonderful job, and and I even my daughter's private school is offering um, the the best musical education that you can. Um, but I'm I. 
I've got enough money to pay for that just, but it's not fair on all those other children that are being denied this incredibly important opportunity. We're not all going to turn out to be musicians. Um, it's ridiculous, but but what music can offer um, in everyday understanding and life is a balance. You know, for example, um, Bunuel would never build anything without some cultural understanding of not only design but design from a beautiful standpoint, from you know something ergonomically perfect or something some material that had a certain shine and color to it. So how can you divorce? How can you eradicate these subjects from our understanding from humanity? Apart from anything, it doesn't happen in mainland Europe. Maybe one or two countries are beginning to fall by the wayside, but certainly not in Germany, in Holland and Belgium and France. I also worry that so many of our children won't be able to enjoy local orchestras they won't be able to compete or join other orchestras abroad. Everything's going to have to be paid for privately and people don't have the money for that. That we're cutting ourselves off from mainland Europe um, in a, a disastrous way. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, it's, 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 is it criminal? I don't know. That's too strong a word. It's, it's foolish in the extreme. Yes, and as you say, it divides the sense of self in a in a very destructive kind mm, of way. Divides the classes as well. It, d- it divides everything. It's divisive what they are um, suggesting. I just hope that um, at some point somebody will see the light um, before it's too late. But there will be about five or six years of disaster in, um, with regard to education and the in the arts, and the, they've already fallen behind. Um, people aren't going on to study it or teach it. It's ignorant in the extreme. And, you know, thank goodness for representatives from our profession who are trying to make ministers understand the importance of arts education. It's what's got to keep trying. Yes, including your good self amongst those representatives. Yes, and I did give a speech in the Houses of Parliament. Um, I don't think anyone was that interested in it, to be honest except the National Youth Jazz Orchestra, who gave me a huge round of applause afterwards when I'd gone on about secondary school education, the importance of it. But but I, don't, I just don't think they, they get it. They really don't get it. Some do, but majority don't. I think it's how lovely that it was the National Youth Jazz Orchestra yes. as well, because just thinking about uh, the kind of the genre spread mm. that you have within mm. your career as well. Um, I know that, that some work with John Paul Jones is on the card. Yes, it's Led very Zeppelin. interesting. He has. Yes, he's um, was always classically trained. He's an organist and a composer. Um, and, you know, Led Zeppelin finished in in the early 80s. It was all over. And ever since then, he's been working with all sorts of crossover artists and of different kinds. Um, and he's been writing, he's written an opera uh, for three people based on Strindberg's The Ghost Sonata. Um, and that's waiting for somebody to take it. Um, but meanwhile, he's writing a, 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 a sort of shainer, if you like, an extended shainer. Um, for myself, another mezzo and a tenor. So we'll see what that's about. How exciting. Yeah, he's a fascinating person, actually. I really have enjoyed talking with him. Um, of course, I'm so tempted to ask about those amazing 10 years that he had. <laughs> um, when I was younger, I, I I didn't really listen to Led Zeppelin. It sort of came to me when I was a bit older. And listening to the way he's orchestrated Stairway to Heaven, 
Um, it's all his own doing, and he played the recorder, he played all the instruments, um, all the harmonies, uh, himself and Jimmy Page. Um, and the way they play together is, is, especially on tour, is so connected and so extraordinarily tight. When by the time they came, they recorded first, which is unusual. Mm. And then they went on tour. And so by the time YouTube or whichever videos you watch, you you rarely see any of them put a foot wrong. It's perfect. And that's because they've spent hours in recording studios getting everything sort of all the bolts screwed and screwed in and everything everything wonderful. It's very interesting because as singers, we tend to do the reverse. We do little tours and then think, okay, so that's how the song goes. <laughs> right. Those are the danger spots. That's what we need to cover. You know, so, yeah. The the progress backwards. Yes. Um, but but how lovely as well, you know, obviously he's working across different musical genres and and actually that kind of flexibility between different musical styles and genres, I think probably is, is only a good thing. There are increasingly it seems yes. as if a lot of composers are now writing music that's sort of largely unclassifiable as mm. being within as yes. it were the traditional boundaries. Yes. I mean there's my voice won't really do jazz anymore. I think I'm too classically trained. I've had it beaten out of me. Um <laughs> But I love listening to it, and I think um, it was really all I listened to at one stage in my late 20s. Um, all the Montreux jazz tape, all the Montreux festival, live tapes, everything. I was I was madly into it. Um, I used to play play all the American songbook and earned a bit of money playing in clubs and hotels. <gasps> Pretty back-breaking work. <laughs> um, but... My desire to sing Scheherazade and to sing Ravel and other music won out, I think. <laughs> and yet the, the the wonderful thing of having that roundedness of, of awareness of musical styles, mm. of mm. being a pianist, of being a singer, of being mm. a singer across many styles, mm. all of these things contribute. Yes, because I like to do different kinds of concerts, I, th I think it uh, keeps me interested and that's all we can hope for is if I'm not interested in something I'd rather not do it you know I'm, there are various offers that have come through operatically speaking when that particular composer or that particular piece doesn't interest me and I, I you know I've stopped accepting this even if I, I need the money because I'm not going to do a very good job and I feel a fake so I won't take it I know you're also keen not to repeat yourself to mm. find new challenges, new mm. projects. Yes. Well, um, there are certain things that I would always do because when you sing a Das Lied von der Erde with a different conductor, different things happen. So that I'm happy to repeat Das Lied von der Erde ad <laughs> nauseum. Um, and different pianists also offer different outlooks, energy, um, speeds, ideas for fairly standard repertoire so it's quite nice to revisit those but operatically speaking I think um, yes my there are certain roles that I've put to bed because I, I've i sung Brangana with Simon Rattle um, as far as I'm concerned that's it you know she, it was a wonderful experience um, and I've sung it with um, Vladimir Jarosky and, and Tony Papano I mean how lucky am I I, th I don't really want to do it with anyone else mm. So are there other hints and tips you can drop us for what might come up in the future for you? Other plans that you that I'm allowed boiling to say. The, yes, bubbling away. <laughs> um there is yes, there's certain yeah, there's certain pieces of music that I, I'm focusing on, but 
uh, well, Waldhauter is a new role that I'm very much looking forward to exploring and to see how that goes. I'm learning it at the moment. Um, so that's the only other Wagner role I would sing. And there's fairly various Gluck operas that interest me too. Um, and yes, just just more chamber music and working with interesting musicians. I remember speaking with um, Ursula Vaughan Williams as a student and she said, what's your ambition, darling? <laughs> and I said, uh, to sing, well, I don't say to sing, I think I said to work with the best musicians. And she said, she looked at me and she said, well, it'll happen. And I thought, how does she know? <laughs> well, she was right. She was right. I'm, I'm, I remind myself that the astonishment when she said, well, well, you will, dear, or when it'll happen, whatever she said, something along those lines. Um, you know, I remember thinking, well, how do you know? But maybe she was looking at, thinking that was actually the right kind of answer rather than I want to be famous. Um, I don't really want to be famous, actually. It's far too much pressure. But I do want to be famous enough to work with the likes of Simon and um, Vladimir and Tony um, and in the Baroque world too, some of the best. Philippe Herwego was an extraordinary experience doing Mahler with him, actually. Um, so if that small notoriety in the classical world gets me around, then that's fine by me. Well, I think we can say that uh, Ursula von Williams's comment was definitely prophetic, <laughs> utterly richly deserved, and we can't wait to hear what comes next. Sarah, thank you so much. Thank you.